I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. We have news to share with you. We're very excited about. Last week, we were featured on Jenna Castro Casbon's podcast, Private Practice Success Stories. We are on episode 234, Relieving Early Career Burnout with Private Practice. And we are so happy to share our stories with you guys, what brought us to this place. We are huge fans of Jenna's and we have been for years. We both took her Start Your Private Practice course and highly recommend it. So if you are familiar with Jenna, go check out the podcast. You already know about it. And if you don't, there's definitely a lot of gems there. So head on over if you want to get more of us and stay tuned for the episode. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. 
To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we are discussing chapter three of Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. And we're just going to get right into the episode because we have a lot to cover in this chapter. It's all about individual differences in the children we work with. So we have to understand each child's uniqueness in order to know the difference between intentional misbehavior, that top-down behavior, versus adaptations to the body's signals. So that would be our bottom-up behavior. When we look at individual differences, we're less likely to rely on explanations and solutions that are based on our personal biases and our limited scopes of specialization. So that would just be like using what's happened in the past with other students and applying it to this new student, thinking it will automatically work. We also need to look at differences to understand how different children can react in different ways to the exact same situation. And we're going to hear a lot of examples from Dr. Delahook's personal experiences of children she's worked with and their individual differences in this chapter. There are four main categories of individual differences. They are bodily processes, sensations, feelings, and thoughts. Individual differences are the characteristics and qualities that shape how we take in and respond to the world around us. They're influenced by both our genetics and our environment. All right, so we're going to start with a story that demonstrates how the physical body influences children's behaviors. And this is the story of Richie. He's a child with type 1 diabetes. When he's, he was seven years old, he started having extreme thirst, lethargy, frequent urination, and he ended up getting diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. He had really supportive parents that did everything they could to manage the condition, but he started becoming really upset about his homework, even tearing it up when he would make mistakes. He would yell at his mom and slam his hand down on the table. So the nurse practitioner that was working with the family told them it might be his fluctuating blood glucose levels that are causing mood changes, irritability, irrational behaviors, and also that stress can affect blood sugar levels. So his rising blood glucose levels would make him really upset, and then he would need pinpricks and medication adjustments at a time when he's already feeling really uncooperative. Yeah. And then the stress is like causing those fluctuations. So It was just a really stressful situation for their whole family. And when Dr. Delahook was brought in, a primary concern was helping manage and prevent those blood sugar fluctuations. You know, this child found the glucose testing really annoying. It interrupted the activities he was engaged in. And his parents started tracking his behavior versus his blood glucose measurements. And they could tell that his glucose levels were having a significant impact Mm. on his emotional regulation which I feel like those are always, I love those behavior analysts who really look at like the antecedent, the behavior, you know, like they analyze everything throughout the day. What happened right before? What, you know, what was the response? And that's kind of what they did here. Yeah. I felt it was such a, I felt really bad for this child and the family. It's a lot to be dealing with. Yeah. I mean, you're just trying to be a little seven-year-old and you've got this major medical issue and You know, if you've ever tested your blood glucose on your fingers, even though it doesn't hurt that bad, 
over time, your fingers get so sensitive. So poor little guy. Yeah. So what they did as an intervention was to find ways to help him engage in his own medical self-care instead of kind of having no control over it. Yeah. So this helped him be a lot more calm and cooperative. They even got a big whiteboard like would be in a classroom and he could play teacher and write reminders to himself on it. And he ended up giving his class a lesson on diabetes. And that really impressed his classmates. They thought he was so brave having to do all those pinpricks on his fingers. And it made him feel important when they asked him a bunch of questions. So in the end, the key to managing his behavior was finding the link between the behaviors and his medical condition. It's a really good example of those body up, the body up impact on behavior. Yeah. The top of his iceberg was the meltdowns, the diminished patients, the difficulty with homework. And then below the surface, we have the impact of juvenile diabetes, difficulties with emotional control, fluctuations in blood glucose levels, and rapid neuroendocrine shifts. So our next story is Leon. And this is an example of emotional and behavioral challenges from implicit body memories. So this child was born prematurely. He weighed about four pounds, but he had trouble breathing and maintaining optimal body temperature. So he developed an infection and spent weeks in the NICU right after he was born. Yes. This also was such a heartbreaking story. Like, ugh. Yeah. 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 The NICU environment was not parent friendly. So even though the parents were able to be there all the time, they felt pretty helpless because they would Mm -hmm. sit by his side and just have to let medical personnel do procedures that they knew were necessary for their child, but that were pretty traumatic. And then after eight weeks, he went home, but they noticed immediately he was really sensitive to the environment. His body would recoil if you turned on the light. And then he slept best with a lot of background noise. So he was so used to that NICU environment. Yes, right. And then at six months, he had to be hospitalized again for another infection. And at 18 months, he would cry if he heard unexpected sounds like a hairdryer or a toilet flushing. He had a fear of places that looked like doctor's offices. He would panic during pediatric visits and immunizations. And then at two years old, it was almost impossible to keep him calm in public. So his parents just stopped trying to bring him anywhere. Oh, yeah. So at three, he finally meets Dr. Delahook. <laughs> and his parents said he was really controlling, clingy, and prone to tantrums. Yeah. And she figured out that the trauma from when he was an infant had sent him down the red pathway, and he just couldn't escape from it. So his subconscious memories were linked to certain sensations like light and sound. His threat detection system was really easily triggered and he couldn't tolerate everyday sensations. And those behaviors like being controlling, clingy, throwing tantrums, those were his way of adapting. So they came up with a plan to help him relax and feel safe at home and in his preschool classroom. They focused on building relationships and addressing environmental sensitivities And they taught him to always connect with a trusted adult when he was feeling uncomfortable and talk about the things that were bothering him. So they ended up using top-down thinking to overcome his body-up reactions, which she says is like the name-it-to-tame-it strategy from the whole brain child. But what I noticed was this was that thing where she talks about the developmental roadmap that we learned about last time. And he had to developmentally be pretty far along so that he could use language to name it and tame it. And a lot of kids we work with 
just wouldn't be able to do that at age three or four. So yeah, right. I wonder what you do then. I'm hoping she'll tell us stories. Can't wait to hear more. <laughs> you know, maybe at four years old where you're able to intervene in a way that doesn't require, maybe it's just that connection. You build the connections and you do whatever you can to modify the environment to make it feel more safe for him. And then once he's developed then you start doing the name it to tame it when they're further along. You know, this is actually making me think of a program like Tiny Talkers, um, which, you know, I love the idea of a group with the parent is present because I feel like you're already kind of like strengthening a lot of what Dr. Delahook is talking about in like a mommy and me group or a play group where the parent is there. The focus is kind of on children interacting with each other, but also in a safe environment because the parent is there. And to me, it just feels so natural. And I feel like I wish more people would do that with their child because I feel like it probably would just help strengthen all of those like first four processes that we learned about where, you know, those things need to be in place before the communication. So I love the idea of having parents present during a group like that in order to sort of, even if you're not directly targeting it, just kind of like strengthen that naturally. Yeah, absolutely. So for Leon, the top of his iceberg was that controlling behavior, controlling the environment, being clingy, crying a lot, difficulty with self-regulation, and a lack of exploration and play at school. And then below the surface, he had faulty neuroception, pain experienced in infancy, challenges in physiological and emotional co-regulation, those implicit memories, and sensory overreactivity to sound and light. Dr. Delahook says she's observed this over and over in her practice. Children who have a history of invasive medical procedures, childhood trauma, or any pain that was beyond their control have those overactive nervous systems, and they have separation fears, defiance, clinginess, mm. and attempting to control people or aspects of the environment. You can look at these as adaptations to situations over which the child originally lacked control. That makes so much sense. Yeah, it really does. Such a different way to look at it. A hundred percent. And then she's going to tell us later how to mitigate the effects of these circumstances and support a parent's ability to soothe and connect to their child during these disruptions. I had to read that a couple of times. I think she's going to explain how to prevent this or do whatever you can to prevent it. You know, if your child is in the NICU, right? She's going to tell how you can keep that connection. Yeah, I hope so. I really... I don't know. I love these books that like get you on the hook and then you're like, treatment, treatment. Like, tell me how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so next, she lists some situations, some conditions that are, you know, examples of the physical body impacting behavioral control. So things like hunger and thirst, chronic pain, genetic disorders, gut issues, nutritional status, sleep cycle issues, physical illness. She goes into detail about PANDAS, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcal Infections. Yes. What a mouthful. I know. <laughs> PANDAS. <laughs> it's thought to cause obsessive compulsive behaviors with sudden onset, which got me thinking. So interesting. I had sudden onset of OCD about in third grade or so. And I, I'm like, wait, did I get strep throat? Streptococcal strep throat, right? I think so. Or it's, it's like a... A cluster of diseases. I don't know. Do you think your parents would remember if you asked your mom? I don't know. <laughs> hey, remember back. <laughs> but it does. I do feel like I think back on my childhood and I don't remember being 
obsessive compulsive until like a certain period. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So also associated with pandas is ADHD, separation anxiety, mood changes, trouble sleeping, changes in motor skills, tics, and joint pain. So that was the body. That was the first of our four areas. The second one is our senses. So we understand the world through our senses. And when Dr. Delahook was originally trained, she learned mind-body dualism. So basically a separation. You study mental processes without really considering feedback from the body. And she knew she needed to seek specialized training and ended up attending a multidisciplinary conference and overheard OTs talking about sensory processing when they were doing a case study. And she realized that understanding how the child processes the world through their senses is vital for understanding their behavior. Sensory processing is critical to child development, but only OTs really specialize in it or understand it. And the role of sensory processing in child development isn't really integrated into other fields that work with children in a comprehensive way. But she says sensory processing, like a diagnosis, was almost included in the DSM-5. It just narrowly missed getting included. Yeah. So we need to understand children's sensory systems so we can see if sensory processing differences are contributing to behavioral challenges. We can use bottom-up techniques to help get them to the green pathway where they can learn and grow if this is the case. Infants and toddlers operate from the bottom up because their cerebral cortex is still developing, but older kids, teens, and adults sometimes operate from the bottom up too when they're on the red or the blue pathways. So it's not just for working with really young children. Understanding sensory preferences is going to benefit everyone you work with. Next, we're going to take a look at the sensory systems and how they contribute to dysregulation. So first, we have sensory-based memories. We have the story of Lucas. He's a five-year-old boy who would sometimes be happy and energetic, but sometimes really grumpy, lots of outbursts, could be mean to his little sister. And at age two, he had an unexplained rash all over his body that lasted a few weeks. It was so uncomfortable that he couldn't wear any clothes at all. And after that, he really became the boss of his house. He wouldn't wear anything but these three soft shirts he had and would get angry when he was asked to wear anything else. And it exacerbated the situation when his little sister was born several months after the rash. And Dr. Delahook hypothesized that Lucas had strong body memories of the discomfort he felt when he had the rash, and his behavior was a reaction to that painful sensory memory linked with life experiences at the time. And she describes a dual coding of sensations with emotions. So our minds link the sensations we feel with emotions and form conscious and subconscious memories. Our brains memorize negative sensory experiences, and then they try to protect us from repeating them. And what I thought, I don't know about you, I hate getting shocked. When I get shocked, it's so jarring. And I oh, like if you touch a door handle or something. Yes. Yes. I hate it so much. I know that when maybe at some point I got shocked when I was getting gas at the gas station and then touched my car, maybe oh. I've developed these weird things mm. I have to do to avoid getting shocked because I'm so terrified of it. So I always like touch stuff with clothing covering first. Yeah, no, I feel like the same. Like I hate getting shocked so much. People in my family make fun of me for it. 
it's like a fear and when it happens it's not that horrible but like sometimes it can be kind of bad so I do the same thing like I'll touch something with the back of my hand first yeah or kind of like my elbow I don't know yeah 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 when I read this that's what I thought of you have that sensory experience you go like oh I don't like that yeah and then your body just comes up with I mean it's your mind too you're like I don't want to get shocked but then it I know it becomes kind of like a it doesn't matter how many times I touch the door and don't get shocked I remember the one you know oh yeah okay So sometimes this results in hypervigilance and a child can then end up on the red pathway, which leads to them being overly controlling or lashing out. And when we understand bottom-up origins of behavior, we can respond to it appropriately instead of using top-down strategies that are going to require the thinking brain and probably not be effective. So Greenspan and Weider thought early differences in sensitivity formed developmental pathways to things like anxiety and difficulty with emotional regulation. And research has now shown that, in fact, children with sensory overreactivity are more likely to experience anxiety, which is like, of course, you're going to be anxious if you're constantly feeling like you have to be on guard protecting yourself yes. against yes. having these sensory experiences that are so negative for you. Yeah. So what is sensory processing? The sensory system allows us to hear, see, touch, smell, taste, and feel movement. We don't really have to think about it. It just happens automatically. Our brains and bodies typically make sense of the world quickly and efficiently, and we all have preferences. So sensory experiences that make us feel good or bad. And when we're adults, we're aware of them and we can make adjustments. We buy the clothes we like to wear, eat the foods we like to eat, listen to music that we like at a level we like, but children don't always have these options. And we need to understand a child's sensory system so we know potential triggers. It also helps us come up with strategies to help get them back on the green pathway when they're having difficulty. So our major sensory systems, I'm not going to go into detail on the ones we know, hearing, seeing, smell, taste, and touch, but then we have three more the vestibular system, which is movement in space. This provides information about the position and acceleration of the head and body and their relation to gravity. And then we have our proprioceptive system. It's the sensations in your muscles and joints. Interoceptive system, which provides information about how body organs feel and sensations that emanate from inside your body. So she says to ask two questions. What factors are affecting the child's ability to be calm, focused, and alert? And what impact does that have on relationships and successful participation in daily activities? And then she has worksheets to help you determine if a child has overreactivity, underreactivity, or a craving for various sensations. So on page 73 is the sensory over-responsive checklist. And it's really great. Turn to your book, go through all of these, make copies of them. I thought this was so interesting. Like as I was reading through it, I was like, oh, this reminds me of this kid. This reminds me of this student. I was getting a little emotional thinking about it. And, you know, I think that we know the kids that are sensory over-responsive. Right you know, we can tell when a kid is having reactions because things are too much. And we can tell the kids that are under responsive. But I think the one that blew my mind the most was the sensory craving one, because sometimes those kids are like so hard to figure out. And they're definitely the kids that we go, this guy wants attention, you know, he's seeking attention. He wants attention, even if it's negative. And it just blew my mind thinking about it. I just have one kid, one kid in particular who I'm like, oh my gosh, if I knew this, if I could understand that he's sensory craving because I thought he was attention seeking, I thought he was 
from a big family. I thought he wasn't getting enough at home. You know, he was the kid that would just, he wanted to get hit by other classmates. So he would provoke them. He, one time coming back from speech, slammed into his teacher, trying to give her a hug, but slammed into her so hard that she fell to the ground. And I felt terrible, like, oh, I'm bringing him back all riled up. But when I read the whole sensory craving checklist, they just need need it to feel good. Yeah, it's almost like, yeah, like a cry for help, kind of. And I feel really bad that because sensory processing is not as integrated, right, like she was talking about into different professions, not everybody really understands, obviously, OTs do. But I think because it's not as well understood, we misinterpret the cries for help. And it's sad. It's like, that's like a missed opportunity for us to help. And yes, you know, I think so many kids kind of get missed by OT, at least in the schools. I feel like I know it's just complicated with OTs because I feel like they get so many handwriting things, you know, like (laughs) these like kind of fine motor like cutting where I'm like, here's this kid, you know, slamming into his teacher, he really needs help. And um, yeah, I don't know, it just seems like there's some gaps in what's happening, you know? Yeah. And on our last episode, I mentioned one of my students who the student who was in on the blue pathway, I think most of the time was spending it on the blue pathway, because that student was so sensory over responsive had to wear um, had to wear interesting clothing, because they would take them off. Otherwise, the clothing would just come off could not stand the feeling. And it's the kids where you see them like adjusting their clothes all the time because they're so Mm. uncomfortable. Mm. And that child did not get OT. Used to get OT, but no longer qualified. And why? What was that based on? This is one of the kids with the most severe sensory processing issues I've ever seen. This behavior that was very, very challenging for everyone involved was related, you could tell, to sensory issues. Yeah. And the child was not getting OT. So I'm wondering if this is like a gap. Is this is a school issue? Because I'm thinking back to all of the IEP team meetings I've had where the OT is going over the results of their assessments. And it's a lot of like tracing the circle and matching the shape and cutting on the line, which like are valid. Don't get me wrong. But I'm trying to remember if there was ever any like in-depth assessments that I heard about sensory processing. Do you remember? I don't know. Maybe your district did it differently. There are a couple of issues. I think that a more old school OT isn't going to know a lot about sensory processing for some reason. Yeah. And then in my district, there was OT that you got in school and then there was OT clinic. And OT clinic was really where they were able to do the more in-depth sensory processing treatment therapy. They had all the swing, you know, they had all the equipment, Yeah. but it required that the student be taken once or twice a week on a bus and go to that clinic. The gym. Yeah. yeah it was kind of like a gym. Right. I do recall the OT saying about the student I'm talking about, this student would be a good candidate. You know, OT clinic would be what this student needs, but we can't the student on the bus and over there. It's not safe or it was, it was just not realistic. So it was just this impossible situation. Mm, Yeah. So interesting. What's going on? What is going on? (laughs) Because yeah, there was a lot of talk about this, right? (laughs) The fingers, the fine motor, the pencil grass, and not a lot of talk about the other stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. I worked with fabulous OTs. I really loved a lot of the OTs I worked with. And I remember a preschool student who the last OT I worked with would have us take the big pillows in the like reading nook and smash him (laughs) with them. And he loved it. (laughs) For his communication thing, I took pictures of him getting smashed with the pillows and he would request it. You know, it really helped him feel regulated. And that was clearly she saw that need. Yes. Maybe he was under responsive or maybe he was sensory craving. He also spent a lot of time spinning, spinning in circles and jumping. So I don't know. So look at those checklists. Very important. They're so, so interesting to think about. So if children have behavioral challenges that start in infancy or childhood that can't be explained by obvious factors, you really need to consider sensory processing differences as an underlying cause of any behaviors you're seeing. So next, we have the story of Yvonne. She was diagnosed with speech and language delay at age three and enrolled in a preschool for children with developmental differences. And then she did really well and was moved to mainstream kindergarten, but she ended up disrupting the class with her humming and tapping on her desk constantly. Parents sought out OT, and the OT explained that she had sensory overreactivity to the point that she had difficulty processing all the background and foreground sounds in the class, and her instinctive coping strategy was to make her own noises, kind of to drown it out, and that made her feel better when she was in the classroom with all that noise going on. So essentially, her body detected an auditory threat and adapted this defensive strategy because she didn't have a trusted adult that could help her manage the distress she was feeling. The strategies they ended up using were to move her closer to her teacher, use noise-canceling headphones, and then when it really was going to be noisy in the classroom, the teacher had her be the teacher's helper, which she really enjoyed. And within a month, her behaviors decreased. And Dr. Delahook says this shift in looking at the sounds she's making as an adaptive strategy and not an inappropriate behavior makes a huge difference in the way the whole team approaches the child. You think about the kid differently when you recognize it as an adaptation to what's going on, that it's defensive, that it's not you trying to be disruptive, you know, or get attention. Hmm. So when our teams understand the cause of the observable behavior, they begin to interact with the child in a more understanding way, which leads to stronger co-regulation and helps the child get onto the green pathway. So Yvonne's iceberg was the top with humming, tapping, disrupting the class, being non-compliant. And then below the surface, we have faulty neuroception, a need for co-regulation with an adult, auditory overreactivity, difficulty processing background and foreground sounds, and embarrassment, which she didn't really explain. But Mm. So then she has a worksheet for assessing children's reactions to physical environments on page 81 that you can check out. For underreactive sensory issues, we have the story of Mia. She was six years old, adopted at birth, and her parents noticed differences. Like she would run around the playground just unaware of her surroundings, bumping into equipment and other children, falling often. And when Dr. Delahook met with them, she referred them immediately to an OT who figured out that her underreactivity to her sense of proprioception and touch 
caused a decrease in awareness of her body. So her feedback system from her body to her motor system was weak and she was underreactive to pain. And they were able to identify this early and develop an appropriate plan that led to increased body awareness and more successful peer interactions. The top of the iceberg was her clumsiness, difficulty interacting with peers, and a high pain threshold. And then below, we had underreactive to touch, proprioception, and pain, and a weak sensory feedback loop and reduced awareness of her body in space. And then this is my favorite little guy. Our next story is sensory craving. And it's the story of Jamal. Mm. And these are the kids that I love. You know, the one I'm talking about, sensory craving. Like, these kids are so misunderstood. Like you said, he was six years old. He loved to climb on things and jump off of them. By three years old, he'd been to the ER twice. And in kindergarten, Mm -hmm. the teacher had the school OT assess him because he just constantly seemed to need to be in the air jumping off of everything. Yeah. And the OT observed that he craved vestibular movement and proprioceptive input to his muscles and joints. His sensory cravings were so strong that they overran his awareness of safety. And this understanding helped parents and adults understand his behaviors as adaptations to his sensory systems. And they were able to implement suggestions from the OT to help calm him onto the green pathway. Yeah. So the tip of his iceberg was all the climbing and scaling furniture, jumping off tables, chairs, couches, and lack of safety awareness. And then below we have atypical sensory processing, craving and seeking proprioceptive and vestibular input, and then challenges in the first four processes of social emotional development, which they didn't really get into. But maybe when you have these sensory issues, it diverts you. You're not able to build the foundation because you're engaged in these things that are kind of keeping you from perceiving and connecting, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So We've been Mm. through the body and the senses. Now we're going to move on to feelings and thoughts. Our behaviors can be influenced by feelings. And we have the story of Gianna, an eight-year-old who had really big emotions, lots of worrying, asked a lot of questions that she already knew the answers to. And when she works with Dr. Delahook, Dr. Delahook sees that she has generalized anxiety, fear, hypervigilance, and a lot of concerns. And together they explored worries by reading books about worrying, like a book she recommends called What to Do When You Worry Too Much. And it turned out that with this child who was just overwhelmed by all her feelings and anxiety, a top-down approach like reading books was what worked for her and for her social and emotional development. You know what I realized I've been doing that's wrong? Hmm. I'm going to admit something. What? I've been just calling top down. These are intentional, trying to get their way. Top down means you're trying to get something. But thoughts and feelings are top down. And they're beyond the kid's control too, right? Yeah, of course. So I've been totally wrong. So I'm just going to apologize right now <laughs> for all the times I've said top down are like the kids that are be- or that are manipulating you. Because <laughs> they're not. Yeah. It's easy, though, to make the mistake. Yeah. There's the body and the senses. Those are bottom up. And then there are there is that kid that's manipulating you that wants something. Yeah. But then we have kids whose behaviors are influenced by their thoughts. Yeah. So next we have behaviors influenced by thoughts. And for this one, we have the story of Sergio. 
he attended a social skills group that Dr. Delahook ran at a school, and this was a group for behaviorally challenged children. He needed help staying calm when things didn't go his way. He often became upset and cried, would crumple up his papers and say things like, I'm not smart or I'm dumb at writing. Mm. He worried a lot about failing. And when his teacher would tell him it was okay not to get things right the first time, it just made him more upset. So he just had that really classic perfectionism, really hard on himself. Yeah. And what ended up helping him was that he saw a child therapist who he really formed a bond with and would play and unpack his worries and thoughts. He learned to kind of sort out when his thoughts were helpful versus not helpful. And he called them his hummingbird thoughts because they would just like fly around in his mind. (laughs) So this cognitive behavioral approach, a really top-down approach, was what helped Sergio sort out the thoughts that led to his challenging behaviors at school. Mm. And then our last section is when both thoughts and feelings kind of are linked together and influence behavior. For this, we have the story of Darius, a third grader who moved to the U.S. and was attending a new school from the Middle East. And he had to leave all his friends and everything he knew behind and start over. So his teachers noticed that he would stand by the door refusing to go out for recess. And a school counselor built a relationship with him by walking around the yard and just talking. And he eventually told her that when he looked at the soccer field, he thought about his friends back home. And his thoughts combined with feelings of overwhelming sadness and loss were leading to this behavior where he was refusing to go outside. So Mm. the counselor knew that Discussing those losses was the only way to understanding and solving his refusal to play outside. And he felt better after a few months building this relationship with the counselor and eventually went out and played soccer and his peers saw how good he was and he was able to create these new positive memories that could replace the overwhelming sad feelings he had. So that's an example of both, you know, he would think about his past, it would just be linked with all the sadness and then, yeah, poor guy. He just needed some more support. Yeah. So in the end of this chapter, she just emphasizes the importance of a team approach. No one person, professional, or approach has all the answers to solving children's challenges. The brain-body connection is best approached by a team working together, and these can include pediatricians, mental health professionals, OTs, SLPs, educators, mindfulness specialists. Quite a long list. (laughs) It was a list. And some of them were kind of new to me, the mindfulness specialists. I was like, oh, tell me more. Yeah. (laughs) Movement specialists. (laughs) And a lot of these examples she gave in the chapter were, you know, she came in and she knew that she needed an OT on board to help her understand the sensory issues of the kids. So even Dr. Delahook needs help sometimes. Yeah. So in this chapter, we've covered how individual differences are crucial to understanding behaviors. And in the next part of the book, we're going to see how to help the children who are struggling. So next week, we're going to cover chapter four, which is called Safety is the Starting Point. And that's going to go into a lot of detail about the polyvagal theory and neuroception and how to use those concepts to help children with persistent behavior challenges. Can't wait. Do you have any other comments about the stuff we learned today? I don't know. I just kind of feel like I love the emphasis on the multidisciplinary approach. I think everybody brings a really unique piece of the puzzle to the table, especially thinking so much about OTs. They're really crucial. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm going to try. I love the checklist. I'm going to try to think about my students through this lens a little bit more and see where we can support because this was really fascinating to think about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just such a with any kid, with any, with a toddler, with anyone talking to parents and explaining behavior as adaptations will just be such 
like such a difference. It's a massive change from anything parents have probably heard before. If you're saying, why don't we look at, you know, what's this behavior doing for them? What need is being met? Like, where is it coming from? And you'll just look at it with so much more empathy. And yeah, I think that empathy component is really huge because if you don't have sensory processing deficits, or if you don't struggle in that area, it's really hard to imagine what it would feel like to always be craving deep pressure, to always be wanting to jump off something yeah. because your body feels better that way. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine a human being who doesn't have some of that, but maybe that's because I have some sensory <laughs> differences. You know, like I'm super sensitive to smell. I do like, you know, I'd love to be covered by a like heavy blanket. You know, I like deep, I like a deep, like hard hug. I like people to just like lay their whole body on me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm like, well, doesn't everybody have these? <laughs> but... I think, yeah, I think it's a spectrum. Like I can be weird about food textures. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't like eggplant. I don't like okra. There are like things where the texture is kind of weird that I really don't like. Yeah. Mushrooms. I love mushrooms. See, that used to be hard for me. My mom hates the texture. Yeah. I think if anyone, even if you think you don't have sensory issues, you could kind of analyze the stuff in your life and go, well, there is that one thing I hate. So then you just think when you picture the kid reacting, you're like, imagine what that feels like for me when I don't like that right. thing. And then look at what this is doing to this kid. 100%. It's just a new... No, this is good perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So we hope you enjoyed that episode and we'll see you next Tuesday when we're discussing chapter four. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.